It is Thursday, September 26th, and welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, where every week I take a look behind the scenes at the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. And this week, my guest is writer-director Anderson Cowan, who recently directed his first feature film, Groupers. So we talk quite a bit about that, but also we talk about uh, his growing up in the California area, which is kind of a rare thing for this podcast because I feel like all the filmmakers I talk to who live in Los Angeles are all transplants. So he's one of the few who is actually from the L.A. area. Uh, He talks about how he caught the bug, as he calls it, of wanting to be a filmmaker at an early age, which is a, a much better term than what I normally use when I describe You know, wanting to make films, I always say it's like a drug and you become addicted to it. So I might start using the term the bug instead. But he also talks about his transition from working in radio to film, the process of how he got groupers made, and of course, a little bit about the story as well. So I won't delve too much into what groupers is about, but I will say I did get to watch it before we did this interview, and I very much enjoyed it from both an acting standpoint and just an overall story standpoint, because it wasn't at all what I expected, but I like not really knowing that much about a film going into it, especially an indie type film, because I like to just dive right in and follow the story as it goes along and then, you know, form my own opinion from there. But this was a really fun chat. Uh, I think Anderson's story is great. Um, I very much enjoy groupers and hopefully you guys uh, get something out of it. And he does talk about you know, some advice he gives to aspiring filmmakers as well. So hopefully you guys get something out of it just like I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Anderson Cowan. Happy to be joined with my special guest this week, the writer and director of the film Groupers, Mr. Anderson Cowan. How are you today, sir? I'm well, Derek. Thanks for having me. No, absolutely. Thank you for, for taking the time. Before we dive into the actual movie, I did want to get a little bit about your background, because I like to find out everyone else's background before we talk about their project. Um, where are you originally from, and what was it that drew you into wanting to be a filmmaker? Yeah, I'm one of the rare cases of uh, born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm still here. I didn't, I'm not a transplant. I didn't move. Pretty much everyone that I meet, especially in this business, they're all transplants. But I, uh, I was born in old Santa Monica, California, and uh, I've lived in various parts of California my whole life. And uh, it's a pretty simple story, I guess, as far as how I got into movies. I mean, we pretty much everyone loves movie, movies at one time or another. It's just like who's crazy enough to think that they want to make one is, is the real question. Uh, I, I would imagine most everyone has wanted to be a firefighter or a cop or a uh, filmmaker at one point or another in their lives, but uh, very few of us actually continue down that crazy dream. Um, I think it's hardwired in my brain because my dad used to take me to uh, inappropriate movies, not like X-rated movies, but definitely hard R movies from the time I was like five or six years old. So uh, things that become like, that are traumatic to you as a child end up um, kind of you, you become drawn to and you want to master, I think, uh, as an adult. And that's definitely the case with me. I, I would I would imagine that's why I have such a, like a hard pressed passion for uh, for movies and filmmaking. That is a rare thing. You know, most everyone I talk to is from like Chicago or maybe New York, really anywhere, and then they move to LA. So it, it's interesting hearing you know someone who actually 
you know, grew up in the, the California area and even just growing up around the, the film environment, I, I'm sure it was, and mentioning the, you know, everyone wants to be a cop or a firefighter, I'd throw, you know, astronaut in there too, but yeah, definitely yeah. filmmakers, one of those things that... Or a pirate. Or pirate, yeah. Pirate, ninja, whichever one you, whichever side you take, if that's if that's still a thing. But but I can t- I can tell you this, uh, Derek, that I know I'm on the right track with me, anyways, because I'm a contrarian by nature. Like I'm against everything. Like I don't root for any of the local teams. I, all, all the teams that I like <laughs> are from outside of LA. I, I don't go with the flow. And you've seen my movies, so you probably have an idea that I don't go with the flow. And uh, all that being said, I live in the mecca of you know the entertainment business, and I still want to get into it, which is so unlike me. So that really tells me, anyways, that this is something that I can't help but want to do. Well, once you do it for the first time, it's almost like a drug in a way. You don't want to do anything else. Like, you don't want to have a, a typical day job. You get the bug, they call it, the bug. And yeah. I definitely got the bug. No, absolutely. No, I, I definitely know that feeling. So jumping ahead to your film, Groupers, what gave you the idea of doing this film? And then from there, how did you make it a reality? So I've wanted to make a movie for you know a very long time now. I went to film school uh, a number of years ago, and uh, I've been trying to keep the dream alive uh, while I, I kind of fell into radio, and I was producing a, uh, a radio program called Loveline. Uh, I think we were out there in Florida for a while uh, with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. That was during the golden years, and we've had a, we had a number of other co-hosts uh, in and out. But uh, Adam and, and Drew were, was really like, – that was on MTV for a while. So a lot of people know the Adam and Drew years. And uh, it, it bred complacency. I got to work 9 p.m. to midnight every night, and I made enough money to survive and, and, and do whatever else I wanted to do during the day. And even after, after Loveline got off, I, I went out and got in trouble until around 4 in the morning numerous times. Uh, but I didn't really uh, dive into filmmaking because, A, I didn't have the time to be able to take away from Loveline. And, B, I never had anything that was cheap enough to raise money for to be able to do on my own. Uh, the, uh, just jumping ahead, uh, let, me, let me tell this to your listeners who, are, who might be thinking about making movies. Uh, the more like, B-type movies you're into, the more uh, attainable movies you're into, I think the more likely you are to actually take a stab at it. Like if you, if you like early John Carpenter stuff or like some of the trauma stuff, I think you might be more apt to say, hey, I might be able to make something that looks almost as good as that because it looks you know, somewhat questionable. Uh, I got really into the masters at a really young age, and I, and I really wish that I didn't. I, I started studying directors from the time I was probably 14, 15 years old, and I was intimidated my whole life, and I, and I never wanted to shoot anything on video. Everything had to be you know, motion picture, the kind of stuff that I see on the big screen quality. I didn't want to embarrass myself, and perhaps it was just an excuse, but uh, I, I really uh, encourage people to watch like early John Carpenter stuff and and kind of get you know get a kick out of that and 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 try to attain something like that to begin with. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. You know, and I'd throw Kevin Smith in there as far as uh, another influence as you can make something that's you know kind of similar to early John Carpenter, where it's, it's attainable. Like you watch it and you're like, yeah, I could probably make something like that. Yeah, it's accessible. Like early Link Ladder, like you watch like, you know, Slacker or something like that, Jaramouche early. Any early stuff from some of these like pioneers who went out there and just they just did it. They shot it with short ends and they just, you know, got their friends together and they made stuff. And that's what I think uh, as, a, as a budding filmmaker you should be focusing on. Otherwise, you're going to get it in your head and you're going to get uh, intimidated by the whole process, which is pretty easy to do. But as far as uh, the idea for groupers, which is a pretty audacious idea, I guess. 
Um, I was writing, what I was starting to say is the whole time that I was working uh, in radio, I was writing uh, on my own and, and writing scripts. And I have a you know a pile of scripts and treatments of, of movies that I hope to make one day. But all of them were you know minimum a million dollars uh, on, the, on the low end. And Groupers was the first idea that I kind of stumbled across that uh, I, I realized early on, probably on about page 30, that I could make it on a, on a shoestring budget. And I realized I think I'm going to be able to actually make this almost entirely in one location for very little money. And I think I, I, I can be pretty obnoxious and I, it's got a hook and I, and I think it's got somewhat of a message. And I, and I think that uh, this would be a, a great thing to start with, hopefully. And it was. I mean, I was able to raise the money and I was able to do it. So to give your, your, your listeners an idea of, of the hook and, and the idea, the uh, absurd idea that started it all was uh, I was talking about Chinese finger traps with a couple of friends of mine. And uh, I was just saying, hey, you used to see those all the time when you were a kid. Like, I don't see them anymore. Like, what happened to Chinese finger traps? And then my buddy says, oh, I just thought of a great uh, torture device. If you put two two penises in either end of one, then they'd be stuck. And then I immediately thought, oh, and what if those penises were attached to homophobes? And the only way to get out was that they had to become aroused for one another. And that was the germ of the idea. And I ran with it. Well, you did answer my next question is where the idea of the finger trap come in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's but and it's 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 such an absurd idea. But I knew if I I could wrap it around with some of the beliefs and observations that I came up with in all my years on Loveline, you know, listening to those troubled uh, you know young adults calling in every night. Uh, I have a lot of opinions about uh, hypocrisy and homophobia and, uh, and and bullying and all that stuff. And I, and I and I one thing led to another, and I realized that I could have the absurd finger traps at the center, but makes some kind of commentary along the way. Well, and that's the thing is that, you know, you had this core message that is actually, it's very prevalent in today's day and age, but you have all the absurd, you know, over the top comedic elements to it, that it helps because you could tell it in a way that would be very on the nose, but this tells mm. it in, in also a very, you know, entertaining way. Yeah, I didn't want to be preachy. I don't like to be preached at. I, I don't like to watch movies and feel like they're telling me how to think. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're telling the the viewers in an indirect way, which I think is is what movies should do. And I and I I realize you know that it's it's almost like opening your own restaurant. Uh, so many filmmakers make one movie and then that's it. That's it. A lot of the time, it's because they didn't realize just how how much of a grind it actually is and they don't ever want to return. Actually, I got a friend who's got his first movie coming out a week before mine and he's done. He doesn't want to ever do it again. He's completely finished. Whereas like all I want to do is make, make more. That's all I want to do. I got the bug that we were talking about earlier, but I realized that there is a chance that this might be my only shot to make a feature film. And I did squeeze a lot of stuff in there and actually it's, it's easy to watch it and think it's all about homophobia and bullying with these two homophobic jocks that have to, you know, choose homosexuality and become aroused for each other to get out of the predicament. But uh, maybe my bigger thing that I was going after is followers and people who just follow and group think. And uh, I think that might be getting kind of lost. Maybe I didn't really hammer that home enough uh, on, on the other side. Judging from some of the early reviews, uh, it seems like the critics are completely missing that and just saying that I'm using random characters for the sake of entertainment, which is absolutely not the case. No, and I I didn't think that. I, I thought, honestly, even the way you told the story, because it's kind of like a documentary, at least this is the first thing that I think of off the top of my head, is that when you 
when you want to tell a message, you do it, but you still have to to make a film, and you still have to do it in in the way that you envision and the way you want. And I thought you used really all the characters because it. Take Talkie, for example. To me, he was kind of the character to break the awkward tension in certain moments. And I, I, I thought, you know, it, that was conveyed really well. Yeah, he's my mute character that I have in there. And like, see, like, he, if, if I go down deep and I shouldn't have to do this, like, I, I know it's on me for not telling the story properly if, if critics aren't getting it. But like, I wrote him not as just some crazy, goofy, out of left field character. He's supposed to be like the voiceless guy that has nothing amongst us, right? Like he doesn't have a voice. He's literally a mute in the movie and right. he doesn't have a say in like what happens in his life really. He's he's powerless and he's kind of a tragic character. He can't read, he can't write, uh, but he also, you know, is out there surviving and he definitely uh, helps some of the plot points move along as well. No, absolutely. Now, once you once you wrote the script, what was the next step to you making the film happen what's funny about writing the script i usually write my first draft of any screenplay i'm writing in about six weeks maybe eight weeks if i'm you know busy with other things this one took me about three to four months to write because i realized for the first time ever as a writer that i was actually going to make this movie and once i got that realization everything became precious and everything had to be perfect and it's not a fun place to be in as a writer you you want to be able to to like kind of just follow your instincts and go with what feels right and then fix things on on various passes you know everything that i write i always do a minimum of 10 12 passes uh in the rewrites but uh once i realized that this was not just something i was writing that would probably never get made and maybe my son would find it in a drawer one day after i was gone once i realized it was actually going to be on a screen and produced and actors would be involved everything became precious and um a book that i found too late because it was after I, I had already shot groupers that I came across this book. But there's a book called The, uh, the War of Art, which I highly recommend. Uh, the first two uh, sections of that book were, are great to read. I've actually read them a couple times uh, just for future writing. And then also um, back to like what I was talking about with like early John, John, John Carpenter stuff. Uh, you know, I, I stumbled across a movie during writing groupers called Buzzard, which I absolutely love. It was one of, one of my top 10 movies that year, and that's on streaming on, on uh, Amazon Prime. Not a movie for everybody, but it's far from a perfect movie, but it had such a deep impact on me, it kind of freed me up. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it done. No, and that's what I tell people, because you know, back in December, I made my first short film. So now I tell people, if you're going to do it, you got to get the first one done. You just have to do it. And then you'll know if you want to actually do it or not. Yeah, I mean, the first, especially when you're talking about shorts, they can be, you know, things that you only show your parents. Uh, if you're really embarrassed of them, don't worry about it. And then if you, you make another one, you like it a little bit more, you, you show it to your friends, maybe get it into a festival or two. Uh, but the, the main thing is just like you said, you just got to you got to get out there and get on set. See if you can run a set. See if it's, it's something you want to do. See if it's too intimidating, too much for you. Um, see if it's too frustrating for me, it was like the polar opposite of the world that I had made my living in for all those years in radio, which was live radio. And like, you just do it. You, you think on the fly and once it's done, it's over, it's live, it's out there. It's been broadcast. You get to move on with movies. It's so much different. It's so painstaking and, and you gotta, you know, look at every single detail, which I also like, it's just a whole lot different. You gotta make sure you like it. You gotta make sure you got the obsessive personality. No, I agree a hundred percent. It's, it's, like a second job you know if you're working a full-time job and you make a film 
It's literally doing a second job. It's a, it's a full-time job, but most of us independent filmmakers don't have the luxury of making it their full-time job. So yeah. we got to like do it in the wee hours of the night, right? Or the wee hours of the morning. And uh, when, when the wife and the kid aren't looking, you, you go off into the, uh, into your office for a few and uh, try and bang something out. But yeah, it's, it's, you have to be in a place where you're thinking about it all the time. I hate to admit, I, I watch movies for a living. That's what, that's what I get to do. I, I have a film called the, a show called the film vault that I do weekly where I review movies and, and go back and look at older movies. And, uh, there was plenty of times while I was making groupers, while I was writing it, uh, as well as editing it, even shooting it, where if I was sitting in a dark theater, my mind was watering, wandering. If the movie was not that good in front of me, I was thinking about groupers and I, I probably shouldn't admit that, but you have to be thinking about it in traffic. You have to be thinking about it in the shower when you, you, you know, first thing in the morning, you, and it's not even that you have to, it's just, I think if you are that kind of person where you do get obsessive about a story that you're trying to tell, then you're on the right track. If you have to force yourself to try and fix problems, which that's what every script is. When you first write it out, it's going to be filled with problems. It's just fixing problems. And if you're not obsessive about fixing those problems, it might not be for you. Well, it's like this saying I heard when, when I was writing the script for my film that I heard very early on. Great scripts aren't written, they're rewritten. Uh, that, that's right. I've heard uh, writing is rewriting, which is the, the arduous truth. I, it's just a lot of rewrites, a lot of rewrites. And rewrites don't necessarily mean sitting down at your computer or pen and paper. It, a lot of the time, rewrites happen to you when you're almost asleep and then bang you have this epiphany of like oh this would fix that because for me i always want to get characters in a certain situation i want to get them so that they're to a place where they have to make a decision or they have to you know do this to get that and a lot of the time it's a real struggle to get them in that place where it would make sense like thematically and with a story no absolutely um, one other question that I, I had about groupers, because I, I, I'm always curious about on-set stories. Is there a story that you could share on set that maybe was like a funny instance or something like an experience that really stood out to you? Yeah, so the story is is of groupers is this. This is the basic story. is uh, This young woman, she's in her early 20s. Uh, we find out she's in grad school. She goes to a bar and she picks up these two high school jocks, and they think they're going home to like, have a uh, have a good time, uh, threesome style, something like that, right? They, they they think it's going one way. She has other plans. Um, she ends up subduing them with a taser and tear gas and her van, and they wake up uh, the next morning strung together in the bottom of an empty pool, uh, and um, there's a Chinese finger trap involved <laughs> below the, the waist, <laughs> which is the hook of the movie. And uh, they... They are told that they had, they've been saying that homosexuality is a choice, and she says, "Well, you get to prove it one way or the other for my thesis paper, whether it's not a whether it's a choice or not. You have to be gay for each other." Uh, and her motivation is not only for her thesis paper, which is kind of insane, but also her little brother turns out uh, was her classmate, and they've been uh, torturing him um, via bullying for for a number of years. So she's doing it to help her little brother uh, seek revenge as well, and. Uh, the little brother who I had on set who played Oren, um, he was a bit of a method actor and he really encouraged the two uh, kids that were playing the high school jocks to uh, be as mean as they possibly could be to him in between takes and during lunch and anytime they were on set. And those two kids that played the high school bullies are like the sweetest guys ever. They're, they're fantastic. I love them. Uh, not a mean bone in either one of their bodies. They're just not those kinds of guys at all. They were acting really well. Uh, but they 
enjoyed uh, taking on his challenge and just being absolutely cruel to him and homophobic on set to the point where a few times I was like, should I intervene here as a director? You know, I've directed shorts, but I've never done a feature and I wasn't really not with a crew that big. And I was wondering if it was like, you know, triggering some people, but it really helped um, the, 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 the gay brother, Oren, um, Jesse Puddles. It really helped him in his performance. So, so it, that was that was a funny story. That was fun to watch. That's awesome. No, he he did a fantastic job of playing that character, and, and really all the actors, you know, I, I thought did really well, which is I think a testament to you for your directing. It was a testament to them too on a low budget feature like this to give me all the time that um, I deemed necessary to make sure that we we're on the same page before we even shot. We did so much. Uh, uh, rehearsal so much rehearsals with all of them and I rehearsed all of them separately we did one table read but then uh, I, I wanted to rehearse most of them either in groups like the two boys I always had them and you know together and I encouraged them to go out and you know, have drinks um, outside of the shoot and to get to know each other leading up to the shoot but like I didn't um, do any rehearsals with with Nicole Dambro who plays Meg with the two boys and she shares most all of her scenes with them but I didn't want her in the same room too much before we actually shot because I wanted there to be like a, a natural infor, um, you know, uh, informality there. I didn't, uh, what's the word? I, I didn't want her to be, I didn't want them to be too comfortable around each other because they weren't supposed to really know each other. Right. So all of the actors that you saw on screen gave me hours and hours and hours of, I paid them on set very little, but as far as uh, all the rehearsals that they gave me, that was all just because they wanted it to be as good as it could possibly be. So it's a testament to them for sure. Well, and it's good when you find people who are that passionate about, you know, something that you want to do when they give you that time and that energy. It's really an awesome feeling. What's funny, Derek, is I've thought about that a lot. And, uh, you know, there's so many, it's such a grind, as I've already mentioned. And there's so many things, obstacles as a, as a, as a independent filmmaker was, you know, next to a zero budget. Uh, but one of the things that I did have the luxury of was this, you know, working with these actors and then being wanting to make the project as good as it could possibly be, because they're somewhat new to the industry as well. Uh, when, once you, you know, quote unquote, make it and you're making a movie for, you know, a few million dollars or something. I know that if I get to that point, I'm going to miss the days of being able to call Nicole up and say, hey, can we rehearse later tonight for a couple hours? I'm not going to have that luxury with, you know, a union SAG actor uh, who's, you know, just doing it as a job. Right. No, and I, I totally get that. Well, before we wrap up, I did find something on your website that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you did uh, are doing um, a podcast. Uh, one's called Cinematics, and then the other is I've Got a Movie to Make. Uh, what what yeah. were your inspirations behind doing that? Because it's very rarely do I get the combination of a filmmaker and a podcaster on the show. Yeah, I got a big mouth, as you can tell probably <laughs> from this interview. Uh, I talk a lot, and it was actually torture working on uh, Love Line and other shows where I was the producer sitting behind the glass, and I wasn't. It wasn't my job to talk because I always have something to say. Um, so it was kind of a natural. Uh, transition for me to start talking into microphones it started as an actual terrestrial show uh over a decade ago and then we we migrated over to podcasts and my one film podcast that i've been doing for 11 12 years now is the, the film vault which is weekly i've already talked about that one and then another one that i started doing about three years ago is called cinematics and that one's we don't cuss on that one we go deeper dives on uh, like more independent smaller unheard of movies it's more professional, I like to think, and that's where I also am doing the weekly update, which is uh, I'm, I'm, I've entitled I've Got a Movie to Make, where I am just being completely 
honest and frank and open and transparent about the entire process that this has been. Uh, and I started it 14 weeks ago, and I'm going to continue to do it until the lease is up on the house that my wife and I are renting. And if I have not begun to make my next one by then, uh, the dream is over, and I'm probably moving out of state. So that's called I've Got a Movie to Make. I'm hoping within the next few weeks to actually interview some of the um, critics uh, I've gotten some good reviews and I've gotten some bad reviews and I'm hoping to get some of these uh, critics to actually talk with me as a filmmaker on that show. I, I just want to, and I'm talking about distribution. I've talked about the marketing that we're doing. I'm talking about interviews, like what I'm doing with you. I'm just talking about all the things that go into the back end of filmmaking. It's a good outlet to have a podcast. It, it's, it gives you a chance to, you know, you being someone who has a lot to say, it gives you that outlet to, share what you have to say and then put it out there for, for people to hear it. Yeah. I, and what's funny is I'm terrible social media and I think it's because I do, you know, the pod, the spoken word thing where I feel like I, I can just say it on the show. I'd, I'd rather just speak it out. I'm a verbal guy and uh, I'm always getting uh, the white. My wife is always upset that I don't do enough social media and my, my distributor is not real happy that I don't do much social media. And I know the the PR team is not pleased, but uh, I, I would just m much rather speak to somebody about stuff going on than type it out like as one person. No, I, I totally get that. Well, as we wrap up, I did want to ask, uh, do you have any upcoming uh, showings for groupers that you'd like to plug? Oh, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, so the way we're doing it is it's getting a one week limited release out here in Los Angeles beginning September 27th at the Lemley Music Hall, which is a, a theater I've been going to for I don't know, 25, 30 years now. So that's kind of cool. It's in Beverly Hills. Uh, and it'll be September 27th through October 2nd, I think, or October 3rd. And then uh, we are doing a, a one night only event in five cities, October 1st at 7.30. And if we sell, if we meet the threshold, uh, we will screen in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. And each city has a separate threshold. I know we're pretty close to a screening in Chicago for sure. So if you would like to see this movie, and it's the kind of movie that I like to think you, you can you can see it and then tell your friends about it because it's the kind of movie that you, you haven't really seen it before, and it's pretty absurd, and I think you would want – I know if I saw it in a vacuum, I'd immediately want to talk about it on one of my shows because it's that kind of movie. Love it. Uh, last question: Do you have? Uh, do you want to plug your uh, your website? Yeah, uh, you can find anything and everything about me at andersoncowan.com. Andersoncowan.com should have links to like I've got a movie to make for those of you interested in that. I do twenty to thirty minute updates every week on the I've got a movie to make feed. The other shows are like an hour and a half each, uh, and then also has links to some of the shorts that are available that I've done, and uh, has my email and I, I answer emails all the time. I'm fairly uh, plugged in to the audience that's uh, interested in what I'm doing. So if you have any questions, you can shoot me an email. And uh, it should have the date. Yeah, it has the dates over there at uh, Anderson Cowan, C-O-W-A-N.com. Thanks for the plugs, man. Sometimes I do these and no plugs. So I appreciate that, Derek. No, you, you got to get the word out. You have to. I know, especially since I'm so bad at the Twitter machine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and talk about your film and your story. It was great. Yeah, thanks for letting me uh, talk so much, Derek. I appreciate it, man. Thanks again to Anderson Cowan for taking the time to come on the podcast. Be sure to check out his website, andersoncowan.com, to find out what he'll be up to next. For next week's show, I'll be joined with actress and director Tanya Kay. We talk about her breaking into the filmmaking industry 
as well as her directorial debut where she shot an entire film with a drone. And it's a really fascinating story, so can't wait for you guys to hear that. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can follow me on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And in just a couple of weeks, October 4th through the 6th, I will be appearing at Fanaticon, which will be at the Dothan Civic Center in Dothan, Alabama. I'll be there conducting some interviews. Some of the names that will be there include Wrestling Hall of Famer Jim Ross, the voice of Space Ghost George Lowe, the voice of Squidward Roger Bumpus, and so many more. It should be a really fun weekend. As I've mentioned on previous episodes of the show, I was at the very first Fanaticon back in 2013, back in the old Nerd Cave podcast days, so hopefully I'll get to see some familiar faces as well as meet some new ones. If you want to find out more information about Fanaticon, just go to alabamafanaticon.org. And in closing, thank you as always to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which is available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to Anderson Cowan. Be sure to come back next week for the interview with Tanya Kay. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. <laughs>